Hi, Neil Warren here again, and welcome to another episode of the Happy Hour Harmonica podcast, with more interviews with some of the finest harmonica players around today. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and also check out the Spotify playlist, where some of the tracks discussed during the interviews can be heard. A quick word from my sponsor now, the Lone Wolf Blues Company, makers of effects pedals, microphones and more, designed for harmonica. Remember, when you want control over your tone, you want Lone Wolf. Something a little bit different today is John Cook joins me. John is a harmonica repairer and customizer. Following years of experience as a toolmaker, John moved into repairing musical instruments, initially woodwind instruments, before tapping into a rich vein of work repairing harmonicas. He now does repair work for the three big manufacturers. This has all culminated in John now building his very own harmonica, making quite possibly the only handmade harmonica in the world today, under the name The Great British Harmonica Company. Umbrellas, umbrellas to men, men's umbrella lady. Umbrellas, men that hand lady. Umbrellas to men. So, hello, John Cook, and welcome to the podcast. Hello. Good to be here. Great. Thanks. Great to have you. So, John, you're a harmonica repairer uh, slash customizer, so it's a little bit different today. So, yeah, we're going to talk about how your story to become a harmonica customizer. Yeah. So, you, you were born in uh, in London initially uh, and, and, moved out to, uh, and moved out to Essex. And uh, your dad, I think, was a big influence, wasn't he? He worked for Ford and he had a hardware store. And uh, so, yeah, maybe tell us about how you got okay. interested in, in fixing stuff. I was actually born in Essex. I was born in Billericay, 1965. My parents were from the East End. My dad was from East Ham and my mother was from Dagenham. And back in the early 50s, people were moving out of London. They were going east and they were going to what they believed to be the countryside. And the countryside in the early 60s was Basildon. Can't believe it now, but back in the day, it was uh, Basildon Newtown. So we ended up in Basildon. That's where I lived in my early days. Your dad worked for Ford and he had an interest in, in tools. So I think you were, you were inspired early on. And with your granddad as well, yeah, they like to fix things. Is that what got you interested in, uh, in tinkering with things and, and fixing things yourself at an early age? Yeah. So when we moved to, to Basildon, my father was, was working at Ford's. I didn't know it at the time. He was a jigs and fixtures engineer. And um, he used to make tools to put the cars together. So so when Henry Ford was making a car, put the engine in and there was a, a, a difficult nut to screw together, they would call on him to make these special tools. So that's really where I suppose the, the first influence come from because when we lived in Basel, he sort of had a garage. Now, when you're two or three years old, just a six by four garage, it was like a castle. So when you walked into this garage and it's full of tools, sort of mind blowing really. So that was really my first sort of indication of, of a tool business was just seeing how many tools sort of my father owned and my grandfather before that worked for um, British Telecom and he was an engineer as well again he had, he had a shed and it was full of tools he used to go to um, a market in in the east end called Club Row on a Sunday and he used to just pick up old tools um, and broken televisions and radios and he'd take them home and he'd plug them all into one socket shouldn't be doing this really, but you rub, wind all the wires around a screwdriver, stick it into the plug socket and run about 10 televisions off of one plug. It was fantastic to see how he would be fixing equipment. And then my father and mother up and moved and my father bought a hardware shop in Hornchurch 
Roy's Hardware. He still worked at Ford's, but for some reason, unbeknown to me, he decided to open a shop selling nuts and bolts and screws. And we used to live in the flat above. And as a five-year-old, it was absolutely fascinating. I'd go down. My job was to fill these um, big pictures of paraffin for the old guys to put... Uh, their heaters on in their greenhouses again it was like a sweet shop for me all these um, nuts and bolts and spanners we would have now one of the things that he did do and it sort of installed in me that he worked full-time at Ford's he owned a shop that my mother ran um, six days a week he would also take on some market stores and at the weekend we would also have a market store where we would go and set up so he really worked seven days a week for years and years and he still comes in now he's 87 a couple of weeks ago he still comes in and he tells me um that we should be opening more hours and that um, i should be doing a lot more work than i am so he's, st- he's still he's still hammering me down so great you so so some great inspiration there to get you interested in in uh, fixing and, and tools and so you you went on you, you were good at technical subjects and you went on to become an apprentice toolmaker yourself at ford when I was at school, I wasn't very good at um, the maths and English, but I was very, very good at technical drawing and woodwork and metalwork. Back in, again, this was now, now probably the 80s, if you had someone that worked at Forge, you had a good chance of getting into Forge. And I went in as a toolmaker at 16. It was fantastic. I really, really enjoyed it. I got paid for, for, for making things. So, yeah, I was a toolmaker for about nine years. And then um, I got moved from there. For some reason, someone took a shine to me um, and I got promoted into the offices and I became a machine tool buyer. And that was a job where you wore a suit. I didn't have a suit at the time. Uh, So I went and bought a suit and uh, I landed the job um, as a machine tool buyer. And that was buying lathes and mills uh, for the factories. Again, I I traveled all around the world buying um, lathes and milling machines and seeing how they they were made. So as I was a toolmaker, I was using the machines. um, And now I'm actually buying the machines that I used to use. Going to your uh, interest in music then, so and what drew you to the harmonica? So you you played in a band as a youngster, as uh, many youngsters do, and played some guitar and harmonica in that band, yeah? So as I left school, like everybody else really, I formed a band when I was sort of 15, 16. We had a, a modicum of success. We was uh, a band that played sort of rhythm and blues, and I, I played the harmonica. We were mostly a support act, although we did get signed up with Stiff Records, and we was on a compilation album. We'd done a lot of warm-up gigs. One of the ones we'd done, Steve Marriott came over from LA, and he wanted a warm-up band to do The 100 Club and Dingwalls, and um, we, were, we were that band. We'd done okay. I played harmonica. Um, we used to just play mainly sort of sort of nine below zero type stuff that was our main influence but i knew nothing really of harps other than um we, I used to drop them in a pint of beer. Someone told me once that you should soak a diatonic and it played better. So I used to drop it in a pint of beer and then play it mm-hmm. and then wonder why it all fell apart and split. But I never really paid much attention. I just bought another one. So you're, you're so, going to debunk that. As a harmonica repairer, you're going to debunk that myth now. That was a bad choice. Uh, it lasted, It played actually played really well for the first couple of tunes. And that's all I really worried about at the time. So, yeah. So, so talking about your influences, you say you were, you're a big fan of Nine Below Zero. 
we used to do a lot of gigs at um, Shepherd's Bush. Two albums we used to play, well, maybe three albums we used to play on the way down there. I think one of them was uh, Live at the Marquee at Nine Below Zero. That got a real caning. Must have played that one to death. And we played that because we was learning the tunes. And then after we would, when we'd get out the van, we would play the tunes that we'd listen to. So things like Homework. I used to listen to it in the car and then go out and play it uh, that night. The other album was The Q-Tips. That was another big influence, The Q-Tips. And the third one was Fabulous Thunderbirds. That was uh, one of our bands that uh, that we all tried to to, to copy. So, yeah, you, you played the harmonica. You had the interest in harmonica. And did it this time, were you interested in tinkering around with the harmonica? I probably did. Not that it was um, a conscious thing that I was tinkering with. You know, if something just got jammed, I'd probably rip the back off it and and try and unjam it. At that time, no one was really, or I certainly wasn't aware of what gapping was, and and anything like that. And, and and I don't think there were too many harps around at that time. I think I remember buying just the blues harp, the, the standard Marine Band, and then I think I heard that um, Mark Feltman was playing Special Twenties. So I think we I ran out and bought a load of Special Twenties. You were still uh, working for Ford now as a, as a tool buyer, and, and then uh, yeah. what got you interested then in in uh, starting to you know your own business around um, a music repair business? As a machine tool buyer, again I was doing really really well at Ford's, and then for some reason they wanted to promote me to be a superintendent of one of the manufacturing plants. I sort of went from being on the shop floor to sort of running one of their factories. I was one of the youngest managers in Fords at the time, um, and it came with all the trappings. But I never really enjoyed sort of being responsible for the factory itself. I was working with a lot of people. I had to work with unions, and it really didn't fit with what I enjoyed. Funny enough, I'd, I really enjoyed working with my hands as a toolmaker. But if you're any good at it, I suppose like anything in life, they sort of single you out and move you on. As though you know your reward is that you're, you they take you out of what you what you like to do, and that's what that sort of happened to me with Fords is that they kept sort of rewarding me by taking me out of what I like to do. So I ended up as a superintendent in Enfield in the Enfield plant making um, speedos and instrument clusters for for the full cars, and it I wasn't too happy really. And so an American company came along from Detroit and they offered me a job. And said, "Why don't you come along and and sell machine tool?" And uh, I took it, and uh, I went to work in Detroit, working for them, selling machine tools with a base in the UK. And then the recession hit, and um, I was made redundant. And that was really the turning point of the whole thing. I sort of found myself with a house and kids and no job. And then I thought to myself, "What I need to do is maybe take a step back and think what I really what I really enjoy." And then that led me onto this path this you know the path of music i think the first thing you had success in was it was this uh the saxophone stand is that what really got you into making uh, you know sort of music my start into the, the business of music i shall say the, the music business that i was in was that my son was playing a saxophone and every time i went into his bedroom the saxophone was laying on the floor and i thought to myself i can make a better saxophone stand than this so I went down to B&Q and I bought some metal and I fabricated this stand. And I thought, yeah, it's a good saxophone stand. It's different to what's out there. And I'm going to uh, I'm gonna patent it. And then 
I was made redundant. And so what I thought to myself was, I'm going to try and sell this product. I'm, I've made one product. I think I'm going to I'm going to try and sell it. So I looked online. And I thought to myself, what is the biggest music fair of, of how you can sell a musical product? And they said that the biggest music fair in the world was coming up. It was about three weeks' time. And it was in L.A. It's called the NAM Show. It was in California, in Anaheim. And I phoned them up and I said, I would like to take a booth there. And they said, why, sure, you can take a booth. And it was expensive. And I put all my redundancy money into hiring the booth. I, went, I took some pictures on a camera of my saxophone stand. I uh, I flew over there and I said to my wife at the time, keep cutting out the job uh, applications in the newspaper because if I don't make it when I come back, I've got to find a job. And so I packed my bags. I made 10 stands. I put them in a suitcase and I flew to LA and I was next to, I had a booth there, nine foot by nine foot. And I was next to the biggest music saxophone stand, saxophone makers, drum makers. I was next to Gibson guitars. And there was little old John Cook from Hornchurch with 10 saxophone stands that he had made two weeks before, right in the middle. And for the first day, no one spoke to me. I'd handmade these, these leaflets. And I stood there with my suit on, thinking, this is how you sell musical instruments. The second day, no one spoke to me. And then the third day, a guy came up to me and he said, look, I'm doing a gig across the road and I've forgot my saxophone stand. Can I borrow one of yours? And I said, look, you can take one of mine because I've got 10 here and I don't want to put them in my suitcase and take them back. And so he, and he took, took one. He thanked me and he took it. But the next day, he came back to me and he said, look, thanks for lending me your st- stand. Here's some tickets to the show tonight. I didn't think nothing of it. I put it in my pocket. My wife phoned up. She said, how are you doing? I said, I haven't sold anything. So uh, make sure that you're keeping the job applications coming in because I've got to find a job when I come back. So when I got back to the hotel that night, I pulled out the tickets that the guy had given me. The guy that gave me the tickets was a guy called Leroy Harper, and he was the saxophone player for James Brown. It turned out that uh, James Brown was playing across the road, and I just supplied some saxophone stands to him. Well, the next day, I turned up to the music fair. I had about five guys there wanting to talk to me, and they said, you know who that is? And I said, no, they said, that's Whitney Houston's saxophone player. And then the guy next to him was Prince's saxophone player. And they were all there on my booth, all loving my stands. And really, that's the, that, that, that week changed things for me in the music business. I came back to the UK, and I had orders for making stands for some very famous players. And I used the money from selling the stands, individual stands, into um, buying more products, you know, to buy more saxophone products at the time. I moved into a little workshop. Again, I was earning, it was only me. I mean, it sounds like it's a massive deal, but it was only me in a little shed. I didn't have a toilet in this shed. I hired a, a farm building and I started making saxophone stands. And that really got me on the, um, on the road to the, on, to the, you know, to the music business side of things. Superb, yeah. And you, you're still selling these saxophone stands? Yeah, so Sax Racks is the company, if anyone wants to find me. The company's been going 20 years now, and now I make stands. I make stands for the Jules Holland Hootenanny. So if ever you see Jules Holland Hootenanny, you look at the saxophone section. They're all my stands. I've supplied stands now to uh, the BB King Band, uh, Whitney Houston, uh, the Alicia Keys Tour. I've done uh, the Eagles. I've done Live 8 when Live 8 was on. They phoned me up. That they are expensive. I hand make them here. Me and my dad make them. So he, make, he comes in on a Monday and a Wednesday. He's 87, and we still hand make each stand. But the money that we generated from the stand business uh, allowed us to, to buy 
um, some some small parts, saxophone reed, saxophone mouthpieces, and that grew and grew and grew. So I, I used to um, sort of repair saxophones. But then we had got enough money to open a little small music shop. I suppose it was a, like a workshop, really, with a, with a trade entrance, little trade booth. And I would start repairing instruments. And just over time, sort of 20 years, I would get more and more um, instruments come in for repair and start repairing them. And then the reputation grew. The rest is history. So this music shop of yours, East Coast Music, is a... It was a full big shop. So what happened there, um, about, say, five years ago, I managed to take on an apprentice and he would run the shop at the front of the shop. And we was doing pianos, I was doing guitars. We were doing some lessons at the back. But I was mainly involved in the repair side. I had a workshop and I was doing repairs at the back and then the apprentice guy at the front was selling the music books and everything else. But I was doing more and more repairs. That was that was my main thing. It was a little bit like when I was at Ford's and they moved me out of Ford's and I wasn't happy. I'm always happy in the repair shop. The thing with repairs is that when a repair comes in, you have to think, how the hell are you going to fix that? And then you would think, okay, I've got to make a tool for it because you can't get that dent out of that trumpet because the trumpet's dent is right around the corner of the bend. And I used to then buy start buying tools to make my own tools. So I'd start by buying lathes and I was buying milling machines. My workshop grew and grew and grew uh, to the extent that I had, I've got CNC machines, I had surface grinding machines, I had lathes, I had mills, just for servicing, making repairs of instruments. And harmonicas was a big thing there. I used to be getting quite a lot of harmonicas come in. What did then get you into into repairing harmonicas, obviously moving across mainly from brass and woodwind instruments? I was always getting harmonicas coming in. They were dribs and drabs, really, because I was never advertised. I was was never a techno geek advertising online. All the repairs were sort of just done from people coming into the shop and then the, the area knowing that I did repairs. So I was always doing repairs of harmonicas, but never on the scale of what I envisaged um, it to, like it is now. Now it's, it's, it's gone so crazy now that I can't believe how big the, the repair industry of harmonicas has got. And it's all down to the internet. It's all down to the internet. I never done anything on the internet, um, and it was all very, very small. I used to do ones and twos here and there. And then suddenly um, I started putting some posts online. Someone said to me, you need, you need to do a YouTube video of this. And they used to come in and wait for me, and I used to repair it in front of them. And they would say, one guy would say, you need to do a YouTube clip of this because this is fantastic. And I said, oh, I never, never even thought about it. And then I'd set up my telephone and I'd video it. And within about three months, I had a thousand followers. It just flew. Really, that, that's how the, the, the business grew. I've always viewed repairs as a business. When I say that, I mean that you know, one of the questions is, do you do customizing? Do you do repairs? Do you build harmonicas? Well, I do, it all, I do all of that. I do all of that because it's a full-time business. You have to view repairs if you're doing it as a full-time business, a lot different from if you're tinkering with it and you, and you can spend eight hours gapping a, gapping a reed plate. And I've always viewed it as a, as a commercial enterprise. And I do it as a commercial enterprise. I do all the owner repairs, I do all the sidle repairs, all the Suzuki repairs, all the warranty repairs for all the shops. Because I, I've got the tools here to, to get them out you know, to, to do the work and get them out. So I'm, so I do, I do do, I do do all of that rather than, you know, any one part because I have to do it as a living.
So uh, is Harmonica's now uh, your your main part of your business? Yes, Harmonica's now is my main business. I'm I'm probably close to a thousand a year repairs. What what is it you think about why there are so many you know there's such a demand for harmonic repairs? Obviously, there are a lot of harmonicas. Yeah, I think it's the 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 biggest selling instrument in the world, isn't it? Because they're small and and cheaper than a lot of other instruments. Yeah. So is that is that what you think it is about I why think, there's such a demand for harmonica repairs? Um, one is to make it accessible. What I try and do is to make repairs accessible. I'm very sort of hands on. You phone me and I talk to you. You send it in and I send it back. The other thing I think the growth is in is in eBay and the second-hand market. I think you can pick up some harps very, very cheaply now. Like You can pick up a 16-hole um, 280 Honer for like 30 quid, and they're not good. People don't know that because they just see the box and they see it shining until they get it home and they try and play it, and it's really not good. So I think that a lot of people are, are buying some stuff online. They find it out it's not any good. They go online and they find someone who can do it relatively cheaply, and and that's I think what's happening. Do you think an old harmonica can always be brought up to a, a good standard? No, I t- I tend to put everybody off who phones me and says I've seen a harmonica on eBay, shall I buy it? I always say if you buy a hundred pound harmonica, if the reeds vi- are vibrating at four hundred and forty times a second and it's a hundred years old, then that reed has vibrated a billion times. And you're never going to turn the clock back on that read. You can send it to me and I can change the wind savers. I can gap it. I can fix the comb. You can tune it absolutely perfect. But the read is 100 years old. So what you can do, what I say to people with, with an old harp, it's like an old car. You would never drive to the shops in a 1930s Morgan, but it's nice to have in your garage on a Sunday and you pull it out. Um, and you play it and they've got a certain sound to them but they're never they're never going to be as responsive and as and as bright as a brand new harp you're going to get some that might but the majority arm and you're never going to know whether it's fatigued or not until you spent all the money trying to do it carrying on about your sort of journey and then we'll get into some more details about uh, harmonic repairs and things you uh, you were doing this quite a long time and then you came out honor honor harmonic accredited training in 2016 yeah. Funny enough, Steve Proctor of Sutherland came to my shop and done a workshop with Steve West Weston. I had a, a quite a big shop at the time, so I managed to put uh, Steve and his band in my shop, and we'd done a harmonica workshop. We talked about um, how he played and what he played, and Steve came down to support it, so Hona sort of sponsored the event. And Steve came in, and he, and he looked at the workshop, and he said, my God, he said, I've never seen a workshop like this. And I said, well, this is, this is the majority of my business is, is in doing um, repairs. Then he put me forward, and then I flew over to, to Hona, and I worked over there, and I became a, a Hona a, a, accredited Hona repairer. Yeah, did that lead on for you getting direct work from Hona and the other, the other manufacturers you yeah, so the Seidel one, I was researching for a book, a guy called Julius Berthold. Julius Berthold made and invented harmonica machines that made harmonicas. And I was researching that and he was and he was he lived in Klingenthal. And so to research the book, I flew over to Klingenthal just to 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 document this guy. I mean, this guy was lived in eighteen seventy. So I sort of flew over there, not well, hoping to find something out. Um, and Zydel were there, so I made contact with Lars, and and I went up to see his factory. And our relationship sort of grew from there, really. And I started doing um, Zydel when I came back. I started doing Zydel repairs, and then I met 
Howard Johnson from from Suzuki, who I met him at the uh, National Harmonica League Bristol Festival when I was doing a talk on repairs, and Howard suggested that I could do some of his repair. I could do his repairs for the UK market. That's how I met the big three. There's quite a uh, tradition of uh, of great harmonica repairers and customizers in this country. You know, Willie Daniker and his son Tony Daniker, who's still uh, active now. You've got Douglas Tate, who made the Renaissance harmonica. Steve Jennings. We still we got Brendan Power, of course, that has done a lot and still active in that space. So, are you aware of this legacy and these other people, and you know the things that they? Yeah, they're all great repairs. I never met Doug Tate though. I've seen some of his harps. Some people that have come in to my workshops, I've seen some of his harps. They're amazing. I do some work for Brendan. Yeah, so I respect all of them. They're, they're, they're all um, you know great repairs. One of the things I'm, I'm just actually leaning my tea on at the moment is that I managed about uh, or oh, maybe five years ago to um, buy old Willie Danica's tuning tables. The story goes is that. Um, Hona, just after the war, Hona put some tuning, some of their Hona tuning tables into the Hona UK facility for Willie Danica to tune and repair instruments in the Farringdon office. And that all shut down and they moved this equipment into a storage unit in, in Wales. And Steve Proctor, um, I spoke to Steve and he said, yeah, I've still got those old tools and I managed to get them off him. So right next to me here, you can hear it is uh, one of Willie Danica's tuning tables. Yeah, is that the one on your, one of your videos? I've seen you I've seen you using that where you slide out for the bellows, yeah. Fantastic piece of And that kit. allows you of course then to to play the harmonicas without having to blow them yourself as well, which yeah. must be quite important in your job, yeah, particularly yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, as as I said there are lots of great um you know sort of tradition of repairing uh, harmonicas in this country so great to see you carrying that on and you write articles for the harmonica uk magazine as well so you're very active in all your videos so if we just talk a little bit now but just for for some people what would you say the the real basics are to make your harmonica you know work better and and to do some basic improvements that they can do what are the areas you know tuning regapping embossing these sorts of things the main repair it's not even a repair it's a setup i think that gapping is the thing that everybody should do on their harp the the diatonics really if we're talking diatonics is you need to gap the reeds for your type of playing it's a very simple job to do probably some youtube clips on it on gapping but it really will transform a harp that's not playing very well The, the thing with with harmonicas now most of them if not all of them are really well put together now. If you stick to the to the the major brands, they're pretty well made. Whether they were always well made is a, is is a, is a mute point. But today, I've visited the factories of these guys, and the tools are sharp, and they follow standards, and the the people are well trained and they're well motivated. So you are going to get a good harp, but you may not get a harp that's set up exactly how you play it. And so your breath um, and the way you blow and, and you suck and you draw may not be the same or definitely won't be the same as the guy next to you. So you need to adjust the gaps of, of your harp um, to suit your sort of playing. And that's very, very important to do. So if you want a, a tip really to improve the, your harp will be to go online, see and look for gapping and understand how that works which leads me nicely on to some of the courses that i run one of the reasons why we've sort of that we've developed the workshop is that i run some courses for people to learn how to gap and to emboss and to do it while i watch them and to use some of the tools here 
people are interested in in repairing harps and that's good to see you know people one of the i get a lot of people emailing me that want to do it for themselves and that's great one of the successful things on, on my business is that i sell a lot of tools to repair harmonicas and i sell a lot of tools which suggests to me that people want to take their harmonicas apart so if you're unsure you can book on one of my courses they're all stopped at the moment because of this virus thing but i do run courses on repairing harmonicas are you thinking about doing some online, given the fact that you can't do face-to-face ones at the moment? No, I haven't thought about doing that. I've stopped the courses. It might be worth something thinking about. Yeah, I mean, people really are interested in, in the maintenance and repair of stuff. I've been fortunate enough to, to be asked to attend a lot of the festivals, and there's a good turnout, and I love it. You know, I love the people asking yeah. questions. That uh, There is that enthusiasm for, for understanding how a harp works. Yeah, and I think you're right what you said. I think at the moment, you know, a gods of to say we're in a sort of golden age of harmonica manufacturing because the quality's gone up so much over the last 10, 20 years, mm-hmm. and, and the vendors are really pushing each other. You know, they're coming out yeah. with a lot of innovations, yeah. really big improvements. So harmonicas now are great, but like you say, you're just learning a few of those basics really helps just to, you know – improve it that little bit more because they can't do everything in the faction and maybe for your own style of playing so maybe just a few more quick things that people maybe can look at just to do a few uh, improvements and repairs one of the things for chromatics is that a lot of people are frightened to take the mouthpiece off they're they're absolutely paranoid about uh, taking the two side screws off it's all going to come apart and which is not the case you really need to take the mouthpiece off one hygienically just to clean it but the other is to is to, to oil it Certainly Suzuki do an oil, a slide oil, to keep that that slider oiled. Uh, the reason for that is that one is it obviously acts as a lubricant for the slide, but secondly, it fills the gaps up. It makes it more airtight. People lose a lot of air through the mouthpiece. And so if you can keep it um, nicely oiled, not, not too much oil, but um, keep it nicely oiled, you, it will play better. There's too much to go into really on the chromatics. I mean, anyone who's got a chromatic is going to know all about wind savers and things. But just keep them clean. Uh, the thing is with a, with a harmonica now is that they're so well made and, this, and, and the tolerances are so tight because of people are demanding such a, a, a great response out of the box that there is no room for error. So if you get a tiny little hair or a, a little tiny speck between the reed, it's going to lock up. You know, back in the day when there was a great big gap between the reed and the reed plate, you could drop a sixpence in there and it wouldn't matter. But nowadays, if you get a tiny bit of fluff going there, it will lock the reed up. So uh, that's the downside of it, getting things getting better. So, yeah, so, John, you've got lots of YouTube videos showing out different repairs. So uh, I'll put a link up to your YouTube channel where there's, uh, there's lots of repairs um, demonstrations, yeah. Yeah, so as well as doing repairs, you do do some customizations of harmonicas, don't you? Do a double reed harmonica, for example. I didn't. I never really went out to, to do customization. My thirst for knowledge of how things work in the harmonica world, the more I got into harmonicas, the more I sort of wanted to know how they're made and what makes a good one and what doesn't make a good one. I remember seeing, I think Ben Hewley put a question up, why aren't the makers making double reed plate harmonicas and why why do we need to emboss? Why don't they make you know make a reed that fits into the slot? Well, they're doing those now. So the makers have stepped up and, and they're making the, the diatonics now are as good as they've ever been. But um, to go one step further was always something that intrigued me. So whenever I got some spare time, I'd I'd try and look at making things a little bit different. So I, you know because I've got the machines here, I started making combs and I would machine draw up combs and machine combs and try them out and make them why is a harmonica a certain thickness? Let's see if I can make it bigger. 
and see what happens. And it was nothing but just for my own understanding, you know, what can change and if I change something, what would happen? And because I had the facility here, I could do that. Now, Hona have been doing that for 100 years. Zydel's been doing that for 100 years. The, the reason why your harp, you know, your 10-hole harp is the size and shape it is, is because they've messed around like I have for the last 100 years, making it a little bit bigger, a little bit wider, optimizing their design to exactly what it is now. I was always intrigued with following that journey. For me, I needed to know why the reed, why the slot was 2 mil. Uh, every harmonica from Suzuki to Zydel, why are their reeds the same width or roughly the same width? They're all two mil. So I thought to myself, I'm going to make a reed five mil, like an accordion. And it's a little bit like what Brendan does. You know, so Brendan sits in his shed and um, he comes up with these ideas. Why don't we try this? Or why don't we try that? And so just over years, really, I started just working on stuff just to see what I could do. Now, I always knew that double reed plates were out there. And a double reed plate is basically you get two harmonicas and you get one, a, a reed plate and you take all the reeds off and then you put that blank reed plate with just the slots on top of a reed plate that's got the reeds. And the idea is that the reed then has to swing through two thicknesses of reed and it gives you a lot more volume and a lot more response. A few people are making them. Joel Anderson's making one. I make one. I, in fact, I run a course. I ran a course this year um, for people to come in to actually make one for themselves because they're not they're not easy to make and they're quite expensive to buy. So you you get sent lots of things as you say up to a thousand uh, harmonicas a year. So what are some of the most interesting harmonicas you've been sent to repair? Some of the most challenging. Oh, I've had everything come in. The the worst one was a harmonetto. I think there's about four people in the world that would admit to working on harmonettas full time. I'm one of the four, maybe five or six, but there's not many. Anyway, a guy took the harmonetta apart and he put it in a box. Now, a harmonetta's probably got a thousand parts and he put it in a box. He couldn't put it back together again. And so he just put all the, all the parts in a box and sent it to me. That's probably the worst one I've ever had. It took me weeks to, to pull all the parts out to fix. So Google harmonetta. That's probably the most difficult harmonica to, to repair in the world, hence why there's only about six people that repair yeah, so, them. But you got it working. So I've got it working, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, they're, they're a phenomenal instrument, you know. The people are, people do play them. You've won a few awards as well, haven't you? Um, I think, uh, was this back for your, your, sax, uh, your sax stand you won a few awards for? Yeah, I've got a couple of innovation awards for, for saxophone stands. I made a saxophone stand for disabled players to play the saxophone without needing a strap around their neck. So anyone who's got a neck a neck issue, I made a stand that they could play the saxophone off of the stand. Now, yeah. I won a, an export award. Couldn't believe it. But um, I won an export award for shipping stuff out to Europe. So you're clearly, uh, as you've touched on a few times now, you're, pre you're clearly pretty obsessed with tools, John. Mm. So <laughs> you have all sorts of tools. You've talked about some of them in some of the Harmonica uh, UK magazine articles that you've written. So what are some of your favorite tools you've acquired? The one I'm most proud of is that, um, oh, it must have been maybe five or six years ago now, um, I was sitting at home and a friend of mine, Trevor Yo, he's a, a prolific uh, harmonica enthusiast, he he was in a pub once and he phoned me up and said, there's on eBay, there's they've knocked a house down in a town just outside of uh, Throssingen, where the Hona factory is, in a, in a town called Rottweil. They've knocked the house down and in the rubble, they've found some machines and the guys put them on eBay. Anyway, so I rushed onto eBay and I looked at these machines and 
they were now machines for putting the nails through the reed plates into the comb of a wooden comb. And they were laying on the floor. They were probably from the 1930s. Anyway, I, I bought them and I got them back into the UK. And I've got two of them. I've got two original Hona nail machines that probably put together marine bands back in the day. Two pieces of equipment that I'm very proud of. I've got these Hona tuning tables, which I'm probably the only one in the world with these old um, Hona tuning tables. I've got some Hona riveting machines that I've got. But anything that comes up on eBay or anywhere that's that, that looks old and needs restoring. I mean, I've got a 19... I recently bought a 1903 horizontal milling machine, which um, I'm using for, for making harps. So, yeah, it, it fascinates me, these old machines. So, I mean, what do you think? Uh, do you think these old tools do a, a better job than modern technology? Is it your love of old things, or do you think you know they really do do a great job? Some of the tools that I've got, you would certainly not buy them if you was if you had the money to buy, you know, if you had to do something, if you wanted to make it easy for yourself, put it that way. These machines, they're very, very well made. I've got, I've got some very old presses that I've that I own. They do the job, but if you if you were setting up a factory, the machines I own are the machines that people throw out. I just love the way, you know, I just find it a shame, you know, people are throwing these old machines out, I suppose. That's my, my thing. And if I can put, it, put them to use, um, I'll, I'll try and find a use for them. But it is fascinating when you look at a machine that's, you know, 150 years old. How on earth did they make that machine? To me, they're, they're pieces of art. I'm looking at a drilling machine at the moment from about 1912 that I bought. It's a work of art. You'd have it in your home. So, I mean, a lot of this as well has, has really led you into really researching the history of how harmonicas have made you. So, yeah, so you, you've really looked at, as you mentioned earlier, you've written a book about Julius Berthold, and did he make the first, um, the first harmonicas, or he made the first reeds, did he, around 1890? So you've really delved into the history of the harmonica making as well, yeah? That's, that's from, to me, has been a, a fascinating topic to research. So harmonicas have been around, obviously, for, for, for many, many years. There was a turning point, a eureka moment in, in 1879, and it was when Julius Berthold invented a machine called the reed milling machine. So what happens when you make a reed is that back in the old days, they used to mark out a reed from a piece of brass, and they used to cut it out with some tin snips, and then they used to file it to be in tune. And they'd done this really from about 1840 to 1879. And then Julius Berthold was this industrialist toolmaker. He was a toolmaker like me. But he, he was an industrialist that went to Klingenthal, that was really a sort of a farming town, was making harmonicas at the time um and he and he looked and he said you know i can make i can make a machine that makes these a lot faster than you guys are filing them and he got a lot of resistance because people were saying but they're not going to be as good you know and we're, we're doing very very well because they didn't really know the capacity of the market they just thought well we're selling what we're making that's surely that's that's what we want to do so these guys were making reeds by hand and they were making them in their homes and they were getting their children that had very very good ears for tuning to tune these reeds up and it was a terrible process they used to be covered in brass dust uh, so julius berthold invented a machine this reed milling machine and he went from making something like you could make um let's say a thousand reeds a day that he could make 10,000 an hour. 
and it completely revolutionized harmonica making. Everyone who made a harmonica would buy his machines, and Hona bought his machines, Zydel bought his machines. And if you couldn't buy his machine, you were put out of business because you just really couldn't keep up with the big guys. So Hona would just buy his complete stock off him, and then no one could compete with Hona. And he made this machine, and it fascinated me. No one had written about him. I found a very old book that I paid to get translated. It was book book written in about 1890. And there was a chapter on Julius Berthold, and I couldn't read it, so I sent it away to be translated. And it came back translated, and it fascinated me. It told me the whole story of how harmonicas were made back in 1890. And I thought, right, that's it. I need to jump on a plane and go and find this guy's house. And I went to Klingenthal. I drove. I flew into to Prague. I jumped on a, in a car, and I drove to Klingenthal. And I had this old map of where this guy lived, and I had um, inklings of where his factory was. He had a factory along the river. So I, I went into a hotel. The next morning, I got up with a rucksack on my back and my camera, and I went to find where this factory was. And I pulled open an old gate, and there was his factory. It was completely derelict, all falling apart. And the guy, I spoke to a guy and said to him, can I get in there? And he said, no, you can't get in there. It's derelict. We're going to knock it down. And it was the original factory that made the equipment that made the harmonica. It was absolutely fascinating. And so I researched it and I wrote his story. And anyone who wants a copy, they can go onto my website. It's free. I've just made it as a PDF. And you can go onto my website and just look the Julius Berthold story. And you can download it. And I just wrote his story. And it's a very, very fascinating story. All this then, your, your history of moving from being a, being interested in tools as a boy with your father and grandfather, working for Ford as a tool maker, starting making your own saxophone racks, starting taking on harmonic repairs, and then getting interested in the history of harmonic, have all led you to this moment where you have now, over the last year or so, set up the Great British Harmonica Company. So uh, what's that all about? How that started was that I was doing some workshops in here and I was showing people the making of reeds by hand, the old way. Because one of the things I have, when I repair when I repair a harp, I've got some reed blanks. Now, I can't think where I got them from, but I've got a pot of reed blanks. And these reed blanks are basically a 25 mil reed that haven't been tuned. So if ever a reed breaks on a harmonica, I can put this reed on and I can cut it to length and I can make any reed and tune it on any harmonica because i do some i do some repairs a lot of repairs for, for museums where they where they, they you can't get the parts anymore so you have to make them and so i was showing how i made reeds and someone said to me look you make the comb you make cover plates you make reeds you could make your own harp why don't you make your own harp and i thought to myself well you know i've got to i'm a bit too busy and then it sort of the the seed was sown though that i used to think to myself you know i could probably make a a harmonica but i would need to get the tools because there's a reason why people don't make harmonicas in fact in the world i don't know of anyone that hand makes one harmonica you know, one person that makes one harmonica in his garage. There are some people that have tried in the past, and and you can certainly do it if you throw money at it. You know, if you take a harmonica and and say to someone, can you make me that part, and can you make me that part, and they'll say, yeah, that's £10,000, that's £20,000, you can certainly get it outsourced. But I was fascinated with the way 
the harmonica industry were making harps before the big machines and the big corporations took over. Because one of the, th- the fascinating things, if you go to Klingenthal, where Zeidl are, that town had something like 150 harmonica companies in the town. And the town's very, very small. And, and I thought to myself, how can there be a town with 150 harmonica makers um, that surely they haven't all got big factories? And they haven't. They've got small little tools in their garage making these harmonicas. And I thought, right, that's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to try and make the, the tools so that I can make every part here in, in my workshop. When you're going you're gonna to try and copy the processes of you know 1870 it does help if you can buy some machines from 1870 because then it really makes it authentic and so i started looking on ebay for very old presses and equipment that basically looked like the equipment that um, they were using back then you know that you could buy today so i'd buy a, a horizontal milling machine and i would make the jigs the tooling that milled the, the reeds and I would make some tooling. And that's really where I'm at at the moment. I spent a year now making the tools and you will see them. If you go onto my YouTube channel, you'll see me making the tools that make the harmonica. So I registered the name, the great British harmonica company. Uh, so far, uh, all I've made is a pitch pipe. I've made a one, a one reed, a C pitch pipe, but we're close, we're close to it. It's not for a commercial venture. I'm hoping that one day that I can run a, a, a workshop here where people can come to my workshop and for maybe three days we get a piece of wood, we get a piece of brass, and we make a diatonic harmonica from scratch. Now, that if you take home after three days a harmonica that you've made, I think that would be something worth taking home. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. So these, so these harmonicas, you, you're making a harmonica completely made in the in 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 the UK, which has never been done before, and yep. you're using uh, traditional tools to do this. Yep. Some of which you've acquired, and some of which you you you've made yourself. Yeah. Yep. So as you say, this isn't really commercial venture. So you're not planning on mass producing these or, or selling lots of them. But what are, what are you sort of thinking around selling them? And if people want to buy them, what what you know what is the plan? I don't know. I'm going to see how it develops, to be honest. I mean, the idea is that it's going to just be handmade. I'm I'm trying to follow the processes from, you know, the 1870s in that I've got to make 20 reeds. I've got to punch out two reed plates. There's another business that I'm in. But there's another business, if you want to look up, which is called johncookengraving.co.uk because I'm also a hand engraver and I hand engrave the cover plates. So the idea is that it's going to be solid silver cover plates. They're going to be hand engraved. I just want to use things like British woods. I'm going to try and find some woods where the trees have been felled naturally. They're fallen. And I make the combs from from a specific wood from a specific area in the UK. I'm going to hand engrave the um, silver cover plates. I've got a a hallmark, uh, a John Cook hallmark, so I'm going to send it to London to be hallmarked. So it's just going to be, I just want it to be a nice handmade harmonica. I don't know of anyone that hand makes a harmonica. I know people that hand make trumpets, and I know people that hand make guitars and violins, but there is a reason why no one hand makes a harmonica, is that it's a very, very difficult instrument to make. As I say, I've been a toolmaker, and I've been working as a toolmaker or on tools for nearly 40 years, and even I struggle, and I've been doing it for 40 years. 
there's some very, very difficult processes. So when you get a harmonica out of a box from from one of the big manufacturers, you need to give it a little bit of respect because there's a lot of work that's gone into that. I'm always amazed how they sell them so cheaply. People say to me, harmonicas are going up in price. You know, I paid £40 for this. And I say, believe you me, if you try to make that harmonica, it's going to take you 40 years. Do you expect that your handmade harmonica will be of a better quality than mass-produced harmonicas, factory-made harmonicas? I'm at least hoping they're going to be the same. The beauty of, of, of something that's handmade is that if it's not right, you're going to work on it till it's right. So I'm going to say that anyone that plays one that I hand out to play is going to play really, really well. You're never going to get one that's not. They are going to be good. I've got some very good processes for, for reed making. One of the things I'm going to do with the reeds is that if you look on a reed, they mill the tuning mark on it. You'll see some milling marks where, where the machine cuts the tuning of the reed. And that sometimes creates some stress marks along uh, on the reed and they break along where they where they tune them and so i know that zydal grind those now but i'm gonna i've got a process where i'm gonna hammer form them and they used to hammer they used to hammer tune them back in the day and i'm gonna go i'm gonna go back to that process to see if i can redefine that see the beauty of hand making something is you're not you're not constrained by having to make a million if you have to make a million like honer have to make a million special 20s the, the, you know there's certain processes to making a million to making one and so if i have to just make one i can hammer every read well you couldn't hammer every read if you was making a million of them so there's certain processes that a hand made item can be significantly different from that of a mass-produced one one is um, hand engraving you know i'm going to hand engrave people's names on it and and those sort of things so we talked about the different parts you're going to have silver cover plates which are going to be engraved you're going to have some sort of british wood you know what sort of wood yet and the quality is obviously resisting the um, swelling and things like that and treat are you going to treat that Yes. So there's a process that woodworkers use called vacuum infusion. It's where you put the wood in a resin in a, in a vacuum chamber and you suck all the air out of it and you replace it with resin. I'm gonna. I'm looking at that process. Then the wood will never swell. As I say, you can only do that if you're hand making each one. It's not something that a mass pro- mass produced people can do. Uh, and the and the reeds themselves are they going to be made out of brass? I'm probably going to make them out of phosphor bronze. When I when I started to look into reed making, I found some old harps that played really really well, and I took them apart and I sent the reed to a laboratory to be analysed to tell me exactly the constituent parts of the metal that made that reed up because I wanted to copy the exact makeup of the reed, the amount of zinc, the amount of copper that was in that. And the lab came back to me with a report and they said, this is the brass that um, that was used to make those reeds. And you can't get it. See, one of the things that the big makers will say is they're not going to tell you where they get their brass from. And being a one-man band in Hornchurch, I don't need 25 miles of brass. I only need a sheet of A4. And so no one's going to sell me a sheet of A4 brass So there's a big problem, again, with handmade items is that you just can't get the economies of scale to be buying some of this product. But one of the things that I have got, uh, I can get quite readily, is phosphor bronze. So the phosphor bronze, I think Suzuki make phosphor bronze reeds and a couple of the other companies. I'm going to possibly use phosphor bronze. One of the things that I'm working on at the moment is if you look at a diatonic, you've got 10 slots and they, they go down in size. 
hole one is longer than hole two. Hole two is longer than hole three. You know, it's on a, on a diatonic. Because I can hand make them, I don't necessarily need to do that. I can make the first three slots the same length. So what I'm doing at the moment is I can really play around with optimizing exactly the read length, you know, that, that resonates based on the chamber size. So I can play around with that. That's, that's the beauties of hand-making something. There's the Holmhurst theory of resonance, that uh, there is an optimum size read to the chamber that makes it sing. So you, you know when you can, sometimes you pick up a harp in a certain key and certain note really plays better than, than another harp. And it's all to do with chamber shapes and sizes. And, and so that's what I'm going to be getting into next. And I just want a sort of harp that I can say is really handmade. I mean, but they were originally handmade. Yes, and they were hand engraved, but obviously couldn't keep up with, with demand. So are you going to rivet the reeds or are you going to put screws in them? Screw them. Because there's always this, this idea, isn't it, that you, if you had screw, individual screw, then you could just easily change them like a guitar string. The thing is, you can't. It's quite easy to, to tune a guitar, but it's not so easy to tune a harmonica. If you put a reed on, you've still got to sort of tune it. When are you planning on producing your first one? By the end of the year. Well, I mean, how, how many do you think you'll make? And you know, I'm sure a lot of people lis- listening to this might be interested in buying them. So, how many do you plan to make? Is it going to be just a very small number, or I don't know yet. Again, I'm not. I'm not interested in selling any yet until I'm really, really happy with how it looks and plays sometimes you can make your own market let's say it's 500 pounds who's going to buy a 500 pound harmonica but collectors may buy it i mean i'm sure it's going to be a collector's piece in that it's going to be the first handmade harmonica since 1870 what i like about where we're at is that we're at the beginning where honer was when he made his first one it's a case of we're, we're making one, but who's to say that we make this one and it costs £500 to make, but people really like the way the cover plates look and, and the way the comb comes out. So maybe it grows and, and we say, okay, with a bit of tooling, I can probably make these now half that price. And then I'm selling a few more. And then I say, okay, so maybe the Great British Harmonica Company that starts out as a bit of a a hobby thing for me just to satisfy can I make a whole harmonica by hand is the start of something. I I haven't ruled that out. No one makes a reed plate because no one makes a reed and no one stamps out a reed plate. A lot of people do make harps, but they don't make the reed plate. The reed and the reed plate, if I can crack that, that's the key to it. When you can make the reed and the reed plate, you can stamp it the Great British Harmonica Company. So so making the, the reeds and the replay then, once you've got the tools set up, there's a video of you putting the first uh, reed made in the yeah. UK on there. I saw that video. Uh, and then you did the second one straight. So presumably once the tool's set up, you can reasonably quickly kind of mass produce the reeds and replays. Yeah. I mean, you can. You know, I've still got a manual press and I still stamp one out at a time. So there's a, a YouTube clip from Zydel where he stamps out a thousand a second. My, I still stamp mine out by hand, each one by hand. I know you've made videos about, you know, embossing reeds and getting these, those tolerances really small and particularly the corners, which I know you, you like. Mm. So are your reeds going to be very, very precise yeah. to cut? Maybe more than, you know, a manuf- mass manufactured reeds? Yes. So that's where we may really see the differences here. Well, you know, the, you know, your reads maybe are a lot, you know, are a higher quality and they really do play really nicely. I'm just trying to think where would a situation be where you need it that great? I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm not trying to de- decry my own harmonicas, but I think it's going to be a market for collectors. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, who, who do I know 
who buys a £5,000 watch. I know people that will pay £50,000 for a watch. The funny thing is, I, I talked to someone once about I'm making these harmonicas and they're going to be £500 each, and he wanted three. You get this kind of premium goods sort of market, don't you? Which is, you know, people like, you know, obviously cars and clothes and all sorts of things. So you're quite right. There is a premium. So at the moment, I think I've got to get my head around the handmade thing and not try and sell it to someone who wants a 30 pound harmonica and try and convince them that my harmonica is worth paying extra. I think at the moment, obviously, you're still in quite early stages. You're not quite sure what you want to do with it, whether you want to you know, make it kind of affordable, then maybe that kind of 250, you know, sort of mark is maybe affordable for some people or pushing it up to 500 where you're only going to get people who've got a serious amount of money sort of sort of starting to trust in buying those. The, the, one of the problems with the harmonicas, isn't it, is that you can't try them before you buy them, you know, effectively. No. You know, that's a bit of a barrier, isn't it? But once you get good reviews... Yeah, I think um, the other thing is that there's a market, dare I say, for it sitting on someone's desk with their name on. You know, their dad used to play harmonica. He doesn't play it anymore. They want to get him a retirement present. They go online and, and they like the story of the handmade harmonica. Yeah, and it's it's really fascinating to see and what you do with it. Yeah, so... So, yeah, thanks, John. Oh, really looking forward to your harmonica being your first harmonica being ready, hopefully, by the end of the year, and then seeing where you go with it and where, and where it uh, where it's section. I'm sure people will be very interested in, in checking that out when it comes out. So, yeah, obviously now we're in um, we're in pandemic time. So just finishing off your, your own future plans. Are you still nice and busy repairing harmonicas and, and doing lots of work? And obviously you're working on making your own uh, harmonica. Yeah. So with, with regards to the harmonica repairs, I am still busy. Uh, one of the things that I did... I did phone up a, a local medical supplies. I wanted to buy some equipment with reference to, to the coronavirus so that I could increase the sterilization of harps, one for my own health and safety, but also for the customers. So I added an extra ultrasonic cleaning uh, machine that I bought and I use a certain fluid. So so the process is that when they come in, obviously I get my gloves on and I put them through this medical ultrasonic cleaner and then I can sort of work on them and then they go back to a two stage. And one of the people, if anyone's have had one of my harps back, you'll notice that they come sealed in a bag. And that is that after I've worked on it, I then strip it down again. I then put it through the ultrasonic cleaner. And then with the gloves on, I put it into a, a heat sealed bag so that no one has touched it from when it's come out the cleaner. So I don't know whether other repairers are doing that, but um, be rest assured that um, it's been very, very well cleaned and no one has touched it or blown it you know touched it by hand before they've got it back that has meant that um, i've been able to sort of carry on really yeah that's brilliant and a lot of people are particularly we say at this time with the virus are very interested in the you know the hygiene factor of harmonica so th- this this ultrasonic cleaner that you're using is doing the job for you there is it's not it's not the cleaner so much as the fluid i think i bought about two liters of this stuff and it was nearly 100 pounds for it but it's what they use at the operating theaters to sterilize all their products so it really is a high high quality um sterilizing and on the side it's got stamped covid killer so it really is a um a medical grade ultrasonic fluid it's very expensive so i'm not i'm not going to say that people can rush out and buy this but because i get through so many harps it's something that um, I, I needed to have, really. Great to talk to you about. I could talk to you about harmonicas all day, but I'll have to stop it there. So thanks very much for joining me today, John. No problem. Thanks for having me. That's it for today, folks. Final word from my sponsor, the Lone Wolf Blues Company, providing some great effects pedals and microphones, all purpose-built for the harmonica. Be sure to check out their website. 
And thanks to John Cook, the man who can fix just about anything. And the umbrellas and the umbrellas to men today. Bring your parasol, it may be small, it may be big. He repairs them all with what you call a finger me jig. Pitter patter patter, pitter patter patter, here comes the rain. Let it pitter patter, let it pitter patter, don't mind the rain. He'll mend your umbrella, then go on his way singing to the luma luma to the lay, to the luma luma to the